Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Ruth Ann. Thank you, Anita. Last week, we began a study on in Christ, freedom in Christ. You can't live the Christian life. If you want a handout and you didn't get one, wave your hand. Jeff will make sure you get one. <clears throat> As we reflect on this, I would pose a question. This is a thought question. What is perhaps one of the core items in living in dependency upon God? Christ, the Holy Spirit, and other believers. What is perhaps the very core, one of very core item in living in dependency upon God? Christ, the Holy Spirit, and other believers. Think about that as I share a story from my first year of college. I was bound and determined that I was going to go to Penn State. My college boards were such that Penn State would not accept me. I was in National Honor Society, graduated seventh in my class with over 100 students in the class, but I did not do well in college boards. Out of a 1,600 total, I think it's 2,400 now, but 1,600 then, I just a little over 800. So I took second best and went to Delaware Valley. And that's a Doyle's town. And uh, I thought, I will prove Penn State wrong. I will get straight A's and I will transfer to Penn State. I did well in every subject except English. I always try to figure out professors. And I thought I had this guy figured out. No, I thought I knew him a little bit about him, just from how he responded in class and so on. So we had a paper due, and I thought, this guy likes you know, a little bit longer paper than a little bit shorter paper. So I wrote a little longer paper, and I got the paper back, and he gave me a C. In the bottom, he put, say what needs to be said and quit. <laughs> and I, maybe not those exact words, you know, but that was a effect, you know, and I never could get anything over a C the whole year. First semester, I got a C. Second semester, I got a C. I never figured the guy out. There's some other process that I figured out, you know, and uh, you kind of study for a test accordingly, you know, and write a paper accordingly, you know. Some of them you can't. But think about God. Think about Christ and the Holy Spirit. As it relates in walking the dependency upon them, recognizing we can't live the Christian life, in and of ourselves, just the whole issue of knowing God. What is he like? How does he relate to us? How does he respond? So we'll look at several passages and then throw in some blanks along the way. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> just several verses in Genesis chapter 1. On day 7, he's creating Adam and Eve, or male and female, I guess we should say, in chapter 1. And he says in verse 28, after he created male and female in his image, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Notice he blessed them and then asked them to be fruitful and increase fill the earth, rule over, and so on. We know that in chapter 2, God told Adam to care for the garden. He could eat of any tree in the garden, but he was not to eat of the tree of 
knowledge of good and evil. We know in chapter 3, Adam and Eve ate of that fruit. But look at chapter 3 and verse 8. This is after Adam and Eve chose to disobey. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord, call, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me. She gave some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. They chose not to obey. They chose to resist God, but God pursued them. And then look at verse 21. They knew they were naked. They attempted to cover themselves. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. He blessed them. He enabled them so they could fulfill what he had asked them to do. They chose not to obey. He pursued them, and then he provided garments for them. Keep that in mind. Let's go to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Some time has passed. We've had a worldwide flood. The Tower of Babel has taken place. And we come to the life of Abram. Genesis 12 and verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God promises a blessing. He tells him what to do. Go to chapter 16. Obviously, if Abraham is going, or Abram is going to become a great nation, there's got to be descendants. He has not had any children. In chapter 16, we're not going to read the chapter, but we find that Sarai makes a suggestion to Abraham, take my Egyptian handmaid, have a child by her. Abram does that, and Ishmael is born. And the flow of Scripture, I think, is very important. In chapter 15, the covenant with Abraham, or Abram, was renewed. In chapter 16, he blew it. He had a child by Hagar. In chapter 17, and we want to read some from chapter 17 and verse 1. Please see the flow of the context. Promise made, chapter 12. Promise made, chapter 15. Chapter 16, Abraham blew it. Chapter 17, God appears to Abram. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. 
I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now as an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. He blew it. But in the next chapter, and I realize time has passed, God reaffirms the covenant. And then we know that God also tells him at this time that your wife, whose name was changed from Sarai to Sarah, is going to have a child about a year from now. Let's go to Exodus chapter 19. We'll tie all this together. In Exodus chapter 19, we find that Moses is on the scene. Abraham, you know, had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob ended up in Egypt. And then they spent 400 years in Egypt. And in chapter 19, they have come out of Egypt, slavery in Egypt. And they're at Mount Sinai. And God is going to give what we call the Ten Words or Ten Commandments. Chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you speak to the Israelites. And he's saying, look, this is what I desire for you. And then look at verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. They stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. It is in that context that in chapter 20, the Ten Commandments are given. In Isaiah chapter 6, well, with all the prophets, you will find that God reveals himself. And then he calls a prophet and tells him what to do. And then we find the prophet responds. And the prophets didn't have an easy life. Very, very difficult many times. But we'll look at Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1 as an example of how God called and responded to the prophets. Isaiah 6 and verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongues from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for me? And I said, here am I, send me. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understand. Standing, be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their hearts dull. And close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. God showed himself to Isaiah. Then he said, Isaiah, you're going to go to people that are hearing, but they'll never understand. They see, but they'll never perceive. Their hearts are calloused. Their ears are dull. I'm telling you before you go that people are not going to listen to you. And that goes back to Exodus with the golden calf. In the four Gospels, we find that Christ called the 12. We won't read Mark 3, but we find that Christ called the 12. And then chapter 6, he sends them out. And as he sends them out in ministry, he empowered them. Don't take money and so on. We find that Christ, as he deals with his body in the epistles, we looked at Ephesians 1 some last week, we find that he blesses people He blesses believers, and then he says, here's how I want you to live. Now, that's a quick overview of God and Christ and the Spirit and how God deals with people. Now, let's kind of sum it up and fill in some blanks. God's call for obedience is in the context of revealing himself or Christ revealing himself. When God calls us to act, when God calls people to act, sorry about small print, but revealing is the word. God's call for obedience is in the context of revealing himself or Christ revealing himself. That's very significant when it comes to Responding to God. In contrast to that, God's not hiding himself. Or Christ is not hiding himself. So God up front reveals himself. He spoke to Adam. He spoke to Abraham. 
He revealed himself. He spoke to Moses. He spoke to Israel. He spoke to the prophets. He revealed himself. He didn't hide himself. He doesn't call for action and say, now try to figure me out. He revealed himself. Secondly, God's call for obedience or God's call for action is in the context of relationships. It's in the context of relationships. Not mere knowledge and facts. Knowledge people tend to be very hard in relationships. God reveals himself, and then he calls for action, but that's in the context of a relationship. A relationship with Adam and Eve. A relationship with Abraham. A relationship with Moses. A relationship with Israel. A relationship with the prophets. Christ had a relationship with the twelve. So when you think about living the Christian life, it's in the context of relationships. Your inability comes in the context of Christ's ability. Thirdly, God's call for obedience is in the context of blessing and enablement. Blessing and enablement. Dad generally followed this policy when we were growing up. If he assigned us a job to do and we didn't know how to do it, he would tell us how to do it. What did he do? He blessed us. He enabled us. He showed us how. He didn't say, well, go out and do this, and then we come and say, Dad, we don't know what to do. Well, I told you what to do. Figure it out. It's frustrating when someone says, do something, and does enable you to do it or bless you in doing it. God does that. So when God says to a husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church, he says, I've given you every spiritual blessing that you need to love your wife as Christ loved the church, and I modeled a good example. I've enabled you to do that. So he says to a student, listen to your teacher, apply yourself. I've enabled you to do that. I've blessed you. I've given you what you need. Not you can do or you can, or do it. He doesn't say, you can, or do it. He enables, and then he calls for action. How many of us are willing to glory in our weaknesses, our infirmities? Say, this is really great stuff when I'm weak, when I'm infirm. That's a good place to be, (laughs) because we realize we need Christ. In the context of what we've been discussing, God's call for obedience is in the context of desire and delight. <clears throat> Abraham, Moses, Israel, Adam, it's in the context of desire and delight. Not duty or mere action. Who did Jesus condemn the most? The Pharisees. They did the right things, 
but empty of desire or delight. God's call for obedience is in the context of promise or covenant. Promise or covenant. God spoke to Abraham and expected him to respond. It was in the context of a promise, a covenant. In Exodus chapter 19 and 20, when the Ten Commandments are given, that is in the context of promise, in the context of covenant. In uh, Ephesians chapter 4, when he calls us to live worthy of our calling, being humble, gentle, and so on, that is in the context of God giving us promise, a covenant, that we are his children. We've been redeemed, we've been forgiven, and everything else. And I know I shared this account before. I always had in the back of my mind, I kind of wanted the farm. So to determine if I really wanted to farm between college or a high school and college, I spent a year working for dad. I kind of was coming to the conclusion that I probably didn't want to farm. One day dad and I were working in the barn and... Uh, We got talking about what I wanted to do, and I said, Dad, you know, I'm not sure I really want to farm. I said, I might want to go to college. And I knew he had in the back of his mind he would like at least one of his sons to farm. I was the third one. He only had one more. (laughs) And uh, as we talked, he just said, Dan, whatever you choose is fine by me. You have my blessing." I will stand behind you, and I will be committed to you. That was very, very freeing. I could take you to the barn. The barn's still standing. I could take you to the very spot where that happened in the barn. What was Dad promising? He's making a covenant. He was making a promise. That stands in contrast to not limited commitment. Where we have to perform to be accepted, where we say to a child, well, if you do this, I'm not going to like you. If you do this, I'm going to reject you. An employer says, well, if, we, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. There's a time for discipline and so on. But in the context of God, his call for obedience is in the context of promise and covenant, not limited commitment. That's very, very freeing. In the passages we looked at, we find that God's call for obedience is in the context of unconditional pursuit of humans. Unconditional pursuit of humans. What did Adam and Eve do? They blew it. God pursued them. Abraham blew it. What did God do? He pursued them. Israel blew it. What did he do? With all the prophets, he pursued them. The twelve blew it. And he pursued them with the exception of Judas. That stands in contrast to it's not a withdrawal if you fail. I recently was talking to a gentleman that failed greatly. 
On a scale of 1 to 10, it would be a 10 plus. And as I was talking to him, he said, are you going to talk to me again in the future? I said, well, I, I plan to. He said, I hope so. You're the only person who will talk to me. He said, I've failed that bad. Now think about that in the context of relating to God, relating to Christ, relating to the Holy Spirit. God calls for us to obey, but it's in the context of Him pursuing us unconditionally. God's call for obedience is in the context of unconditional acceptance. That's unconditional acceptance for the believer in Christ. I remember one of the days, well, I'm not sure if it was the only day, but the day that one of my brothers was caught for skipping class. He and a friend skipped class. They went downtown Middleburg. And uh, somehow it was found that they weren't in class and they were downtown. My dad got a call. And this brother you know, got some consequences for it from the school. But to my knowledge, Dad communicated unconditional acceptance. <clears throat> that brother was disciplined, yes, but unconditional acceptance. Nothing was said at the supper table about that brother and what he did Mom and dad saying, well, you did that. You're in a blacklist for the next two weeks. None of that. Think about God. In Christ, there's unconditional acceptance. Not conditional favor. Not conditional favor. God's call for obedience is in the context of discipline for holiness. Yes, He disciplines us, but for holiness, because He loves us, He cares for us. David with Bathsheba. David, by the way, who not only committed adultery, was also a murderer, was disciplined by the Lord for holiness. By the way, this is just a sidelight. Would you be willing to elect a president to our country who had murdered You ever consider that Moses was a murderer? <laughs> David was a murderer. Paul was involved in having people killed, but yet God used all three of them and worked in their lives. Discipline for holiness. Sometimes parents say, I'll get you! And really lash into a child rather than I love you. I care for you. I'm committed to you. You're my son. You're my daughter. But because I care for you, I have to discipline you. You can't lose my acceptance. You can't become an on-son or an on-daughter. But I love you and I care for you. This is going to hurt you in life. So I'm going to correct you. It's going to be some pain here, whatever that pain may be, so that you'll be more holy. That's the way God responds. Not 
punishment. I'll make you pay for this. Christ already paid. On the flip side, God's call for obedience is in the context of providing the necessary grace to obey. He blessed Adam. He blessed Abraham. He blessed Israel. He revealed himself to Isaiah. He gave grace to the twelve. It'd be kind of like my, uh, the guy that stopped me for speeding when I was going home from the night of Ruth Ann's graduation. He wrote out the ticket. You know, and I had to go pay a fine. And suppose I went to the hearing and uh, the judge or whoever was there and say, well, you're guilty. This policeman showed up here. He says, you're guilty. The judge says, this is the amount of the fine. You want to pay it now or a little later? And the policeman says, whoa, stop. Dan Brubaker is guilty of speeding, I know, because I followed him through part of Mifflinburg. The fine is $125. Here, Dan, here's $125. Go pay your fine. That's basically the way God operates. In Christ, he paid for our sin. But in Christ, he gives us the grace to obey. He doesn't say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He doesn't say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. No, make it yourself. You made your bed, now sleep in it. He says, you made your bed, I'll help you. I'll give you the grace to get out of the mess you're in or at least respond to the mess that you're in. So David made a royal mess of things. There was consequences. And God said, I'll give you grace to get through this mess. And some of the Psalms came from the mess that David made as God gave grace to go through that. So a correct view of God, I think, is vital in responding to him. Many times we need to study Scripture, we need to interact with others to get a correct view of God because we can have a distorted view of God and see Him in ways that He is not. And that creates struggles. It's a question. How do you view God? How do you think about God? One teacher we had in high school, when you misbehaved, the little book would come out and you'd get a black check. When you got enough black checks, there were some other consequences. So you learned to respond to that teacher to try to avoid getting black checks. There was no relationship with the teacher. 
I'm not knocking the teacher. Please don't get that idea. I'm just saying there was no relationship with the teacher. The teacher did not allow relationships. Now, very aloft and didn't want to respond. That affected how people responded to that teacher. God doesn't have a little checkbook, a little black book and marks with little checks. Hey, God, how many checks do I have against me? What are you talking about? Well, yesterday I did this, and today I did this. Three weeks ago I did that. Don't you keep record of that? No. Where is it? Christ took care of that. That gives freedom to respond. How do we think about God? How do you, how do I respond to other believers? Do we try to respond to them? In light of the items listed on the left-hand side. How do you respond to your children? Or how did you respond to your children? If they're older, they're still your children. Do we reveal ourselves to our children? Look, you blew it. You didn't get a good grade. Better study harder. Did you ever reveal yourself what you were like when you were in school? Son, daughter, you did pretty poor in that class. Well, let me tell you about what happened in my class when I was in school. So how do we respond to our children? Do we respond to them in the context of unconditional acceptance? This didn't happen, but I'll use myself as an example. I come home at 4 o'clock in the morning. Mom's laying in bed awake. Dad's in bed sleeping. I train my kids if they don't obey, that's okay. If they don't come in at a decent hour... I'll deal with it later. So mom knows I came in and she tells dad when he gets up, you know what time Dan came in? It's 4 a.m. So uh, dad lets the day go by and he doesn't say anything. And finally that night he says, Dan, what time did you get home last night? I didn't get home last night. When did you get home? I get home this morning. What time did you get home this morning? Four o'clock. Why'd you come home at four o'clock? I give my reason. He says, you know, Dan, it's probably not a wise thing to do. And here's why it's not wise but I want you to know that I do love you, I do accept you, and I'm committed to you. Take my words of wisdom and why I shared it's not good to come in at 4 a.m. in the morning. Enjoy life.
that stands in marked contrast to my coming in at 4 a.m. in the morning. Mom nudges Dad and says, Hey, Dad, Dan just came home. And Dad gets awake. And Mom says, You better go take care of him right now. And Dad comes in the bedroom and says, What are you doing home? We're getting home at 4 a.m. And just all over me. He says, You better be obey next time around. Or there's going to be some very, very stiff consequences. The one, I back away from mom and dad. Oh, I may get in on time the next time, but I want to get away from mom and dad. The other, I want to draw close to them. No, dad loves me. Mom and dad love me. They care for me. They're committed to me. They're going to confront my wrongdoing, and they're going to teach me right. But I want to be close to someone that is like that. So it's important in walking in freedom in Christ to just grasp, to understand God. Wrap it up here in a minute. Imagine growing up in a home where the left column is a growing reality. And I say a growing reality where dad and mom reveal themselves. This has probably happened far too often. Mom and dad come down very, very hard on their daughter and their son. Stay sexually pure. Make sure you're home by a certain time. We don't want you to get in trouble. And finally the kid thinks, why are mom and dad so strong on this? But mom and dad never say we're concerned because we didn't. They don't reveal themselves. If mom and dad share what they went through, it makes a big difference in children. Just where there's kids being called to act in the context of relationships, the context of blessing and enablement. Son, daughter, we love you. We're committed to you. You have our blessing. Well, what if I fail? You still have our blessing. What if I really mess up? You still have our blessing. If you do wrong, we're going to confront it. We're not going to overlook it, but you still have our blessing. Imagine a work environment, or I'm sorry, yeah, imagine a work environment where the left is a growing reality. And I'm not saying all of them work in a work environment, but the way the boss responds to employees makes a world of difference. I may have shared this before, probably bears repeating. My two summers out of high school, I worked. First summer, I built truck caps. Next summer, I built the campers, you know, the toe behind. Nothing like they are today, you know. They're much more shabby in contrast to what's present today. My brother, oldest brother Orville, was boss one day. And the next day, there was another guy, boss. They alternated. I'm not sure why. Production, when my brother was boss, was always up by at least 10% or more. He didn't push anymore. They just worked differently for my brother than the other guy. Why? He'd walk along the line. He'd see someone getting behind. He'd pitch in and say, I'll help you catch up here. Anything else you need help with? He'd walk next guy, and guy seemed to be doing good, pretty good. He'd give him a good word of encouragement. 
get done with the day and say, you guys really did good today. The other guy came along and you were a little behind and really verbally reprimand you. And the people just said, we don't want to work for this guy, and they didn't. (laughs) They worked, you know, but they backed off. Orb gave a blessing. He gave an enablement. He moved men to delight and desire to work. It was in the context of promise. He had some degree of what happened. So if you do well, you'll benefit financially. If you blow it, I'm going to pursue you. You may make a major mistake, but I will come along and try to help you correct it and deal with it and learn from it. Think about work environments. Think about a church where the left column is a growing reality. The freedom we have in Christ, knowing we can't live the Christian life, knowing that we're in Christ, takes on a much different dimension as we come to know God and how He is. The passages we looked at briefly, we could look at many, many others, are where the statements and the contrast came on the bottom. Pursue God. What is He like? Look at the left as it stands in the contrast to the right column. And I realize we live in an imperfect world, on the job, relating as a family. Everything on the left isn't always going to be a reality. The right might be more of a reality. That doesn't mean we can't grow. We can't mature. Questions or comments? Let's pray. Father, may we come to know you and experience you, know and experience Christ and your spirit. You've called us to be holy. You've called us to be Christ-like. And that's in the context of a relationship we have with you. The context of you revealing yourself, blessing us, enabling us, making promises and covenants with us, pursuing us, accepting us, disciplining us for holiness and giving us the grace that we need. And we just grow in understanding what you're like for your glory and in how we live and respond to you each day. None of us have arrived, Father, but may we make strides that there's a freedom to love you and respond to you. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You're dismissed.